0: And as I just mentioned, please turn with me now in your Bibles to Psalm 85, which is the next passage in our sermon series through Book 3 of the Psalms. If you are new to using the Bible and you're using those Black Pew Bibles, you can find page 80, uh, Psalm 85 on page 462. I have entitled this message, A Song, because the Psalms were sung in corporate worship so a song about the gospel of peace and before I read to you a psalm that I believe is dripping with not only explicit mentions of the Hebrew word shalom which is translated peace but the concept in the first half even though the word peace doesn't appear is all over the first half and the second half therefore this is a psalm a song about the gospel of peace. And this may seem like a very strange way to illustrate or define peace, but I would like to give to you an example or illustration for the broad usage of the word shalom. Again, the word peace. And so you don't need to turn here. I just want you to follow the logic of Exodus chapter 22, an Old Testament covenant law for what you should do when a man steals an ox or a sheep. Follow along. Trust me, please. Please. If a man steals an ox or a sheep, and then kills it or sells it, he shall repay five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. And then if the thief is found breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there shall be no blood guilt for him. But if the sun has risen on him, there shall be blood guilt for him. He shall surely shalom. And the English translation that I have in front of me is he shall surely pay for If he has nothing to pay for, then he shall be sold for his theft. Verse 4. If the stolen beast is found alive in his possession, whether it is an ox or a donkey or a sheep, he shall shalom, shalom, double shalom. And that's why it's translated, he shall pay double. If someone steals something from you that you possess... There is now conflict between you and the thief. Shalom is not just talking about reconciliation by stop stealing, but by repaying and restoring what was lost. That's why the word is translated to pay or to pay double. And this is the idea of shalom. It is not just about the absence of war or conflict, it is about the full restoration of the parties that are involved, whether in a marriage or in a church family or in society or nations, which is why if you were paying attention very carefully, you would have heard me not pray for peace in the Middle East just as the absence of war, but the full restoration of humans that should love and care for and support one another for the sake of human flourishing. Do you see the difference between those two definitions? To put it as simple as possible, the word shalom means wholeness or completeness. When Solomon finished building the temple in the book of 1 Kings, it says that when he shalomed it, it's a verb. We, We don't use that as an English verb, do we? Peace is always a noun or a description of an adjective of of sorts, right? Like peace. I have peace. But in Hebrew, you can make it a verb. Peaced. I peaced you. And so I think before you read and hear Psalm 85 and you consider the first half of the Psalm, verses 1 through 7, is all about the outcome of shalom, which is full restoration. And then you're going to notice verses 8 to 13 is the actual promise and the explicit word. Shalom comes up again and again. So there's my little intro before we read. So now please follow along as I read Psalm 85, starting in verse 1. To the choir master, a psalm of the sons of Korah. Lord, you were favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. Selah. You withdrew all your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. Restore us again, O God, of our salvation. And put away your indignation toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. Let me hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people, to his saints. But let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Steadfast love and faithfulness, meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground and righteousness looks down from the sky. Yes, the Lord will give what is good and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps a way. And that'll end our reading of God's holy and inspired and inerrant word. And my prayer is that he will put the peace of God into your heart. Amen? If you would like to just break down this psalm in very simple terms, verses 1 through 3 talks about the past. Notice all the verbs. You were, you restored, you forgave, you covered, you withdrew, you turned. All past tense. Verses 1 through 3 would be one stanza. And so we want to think about God's past actions in verses 1 through 3. Verses 4 to 7 are all present tense. They're the actual prayers of the present situation. And notice the way that verses 4 and verses 7 provide bookends of this stanza. Restore us again, O God of salvation, and put away your indignation toward us. Verse 7, show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. There are the bookends, and in between those are these questions. So past actions of God, present prayers, verses 4 to 7, And then the rest of the psalm, verses 8 through 13, notice the future tense orientation of all of the verbs. The Lord God will speak. He will speak peace more specifically. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground and righteousness looks down from the sky. Yes, the Lord will give what is good. And our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps away. So if you're just outlining the psalm, that would be a very obvious and simple way to outline it. Past, present, future. God's past actions provides the basis for the present prayers, and then the hope of the future promise. To summarize the message as it relates to this idea of peace, shalom, I'd like to say it this way. Verses one through three instruct us to pray to the God of peace. Verses 4 to 7 tell us what to pray for. Pray for the peace of God. The full wholeness and restoration of our relationship with him. Revive us, O God, so that we would have the peace of God in our hearts, in our lives. And then finally, verses 8 through 13, command us, instruct us to hear, listen for the gospel of peace being spoken to us. Pray to the God of peace, verses 1 through 3. Pray for the peace of God. And finally, verses 8 through 13, hear and listen to the gospel of peace being proclaimed from God to you. I think if you were to take those three little imperative takeaways of application, here's who you should pray to, here's how you should pray, and then all of that should be undergirded by a gospel-centered receiving of God's declaration of peace to the whole world. Let's walk through them one at a time, starting first with the instruction. We should pray to God, but he is the God of peace because his past actions demonstrate that he likes to bring about restoration. That's what verses one through three, I think, clearly communicate. Lord, you were favorable to your land. And notice, just very carefully, the contrast between verses one, your land, and verse 12 our land. Verses 1 through 3 is very God-centered. This land, that's your land, God. It's being identified with you. Therefore, we've seen throughout the history of your people that you have been gracious and favorable to your land, and you have restored, and I think this is an unfortunate translation, but the word is captivity of Jacob. And this is why it's more than likely thinking about the idea that they have been removed from the land, and they're talking about how in the past, God's brought them back into the land. So, verse 1, Lord, in the past, we have seen your favor to your land and to your people. And notice the relationship between the land and the people, and in order for there to be wholeness and complete shalom, there needs to be forgiveness of iniquity, covering of all sin, and God withdrawing all of his wrath And turning from his hot anger, which is why, for those of you that were tracking along, Sybil came up and read for us Exodus 32. A clear demonstration of God having hot anger toward a rebellious people. And then, through the imploring of a prayer warrior, Moses, God turned his anger, forgave their sins. The word in verse 2 for forgive is the word for carrying The brokenness, the crookedness, that's the word for iniquity. He carried it. If God does not carry your sin, then you are carrying your sin. And you need to come to terms with the idea that only when God lifts the burden of the sin on your back will you experience some kind of wholeness and restoration and peace in the fullest sense of the word. The most fundamental problem we have in this world is the sins and iniquities of the people. And that's why verses 2 and 3 go together. You could say the biggest problem all of us have right now, regardless of your circumstances, is your sin problem. Or, according to verse 3, the biggest problem you have right now is your God problem. Because God has a problem with your sin. They go together. Because God is holy. Because this is what God is like. He does not tolerate sin. And his hot anger burns towards sinners. But this is not a downer of a passage. This passage is actually declaring hope that in the past, God has repeatedly turned his hot anger and showed mercy and lifted the burden of sin and iniquity off of his people and carried it himself. If any of you want to just start now pumping your heart for the gospel message at the end, can you think of God carrying sin in any kind of symbolic, thematic way as we turn to the Lord Jesus Christ? Carrying on his back all of our sin, the text says. The iniquities that are laid upon the people are not going to have to be borne by the people, he will lift them and carry them himself. And the basis of the prayer in the present is because these people know the character of God in the past. He is a God who wants to restore relationships, wants to restore land, wants to restore his faithfulness to his promise. He is in the business of piecing, and I mean that as a verb. I know I'm making up words today, but I want you to see he's shaloming the whole land and the whole nation. There's three Very important P words to understand the Bible's message. The people of God, in the place that God has chosen, filled with the presence of God. That's shalom. The people of God, in the place that God has chosen, filled with the presence of God. That makes sense of a lot of the Old Testament. That's the Garden of Eden. The people of God, in the place that God has chosen, where his presence dwells, dwelling with his presence. And just like that very first story, it was sin that removed them from that place of God's presence. It's your sin that removes you from this peaceful ability to be with God in perfect love and harmony. So I think before we move on to this next stanza, I want to just ask all of you to make sure you understand that when you pray, you should be praying to the God of the Bible. You should not be praying to the God made in your own image, to the God that you feel like praying to, but to the God who is, the God who really exists. This psalmist is rehearsing for us a very appropriate way to pray. And in fact, I think, as I've examined this week, it's one of the things that several years ago I started to try and model for all of you. And so just pay attention when you listen to your pastor pray. Father in heaven, We pray now on the basis of your son, Jesus Christ. Because of his past acts of salvation, we now pray for your presence in the present. I know there might be times where I don't say it exactly that way, but more or less, I would like you to know that every time I'm thinking, okay, I'm about to pray, I'm going to pray to the Father on the basis of the past acts of God's salvation in Jesus Christ. And other than The grace of God in Jesus Christ to show favor and to carry our sin, I have no basis to pray to God. Do you believe that? Do you understand that right now you and I have no right being in this church building, worshiping God and offering up our prayers to him, but because of the mercy that has been shown us, the wrath absorbing cross of Christ has taken and lifted every single sin that you've committed in the past, in the present, or in the future. And on that basis, you and I can come, as Hebrew says, boldly before his throne of grace. You will pray a lot less when you don't understand who God is. One of the best ways to fix your prayer life is to get a fresh vision of the beauty, glory, holiness, and goodness of God. The holiness will humble you down to the ground and you'll pray. The generosity of God will cause you to pray to him instead of run from him. If you right now believe that if you were to go to the Lord in your shame and in your sin and pray to him and you think all he's going to do is smack you down, then you don't understand God. What has he done in the past? What has he done again and again and again when people humble themselves before him and say, God, I am at your mercy. He shows mercy why the gospel writer John tells us there will not be a single person that comes to God through Jesus Christ in a humble posture where he will cast them out. Oh no, I don't want you. What confidence when you know that this is what God is like. So, embassy church members, visitors, guests, we pray to the God of the Bible, and we must get the God of the Bible accurately. Otherwise, it will lead to chaos in our life, in our church. It's the foundation. The foundation for prayer, the foundation for worship, the foundation for your life. If you have any hope to say, man, my life feels chaotic, which is the exact opposite of peace. Even metaphorically, one of the ways that peace is used is described like a building where every single brick is in its place. You guys ever go into your house and like, the house is a mess, it's chaotic. There's things everywhere. That feeling, internally, emotionally, Or or that feeling, looking out at the rest of the world, listening to news headlines. It's chaotic everywhere. That's the lack of shalom. If you would like any hope in making progress of having shalom in the midst of the chaos, you got to know who this God is. Point two, we should pray not just to the God of peace, but we should pray for the peace of God into our hearts and lives. And I believe this is what they are praying for. Verse 4 and verse 7 are praying for salvation and that salvation will bring turning, quite literally in verse 4, turning to God, a turning in one's heart, a turning in a change of action. If we jump into verse 8, look specifically about how the, the contrast of turn, it's the same exact word, but don't let them turn back to folly. Instead, turn to God so that verse 6 says, we want revival for what purpose, church? Church. I'm not making this up. I am not just that pastor that gets stuck on a theme and just wants to bring it up. The Bible is stuck on a theme. The purpose for God to answer prayers is so that what? He'd get glory, so that he'd be rejoiced in, so that God would be praised. That's what verse six says. Revive me again so that way I have a happier life? Maybe. How about a holy life? How about God being honored and supremely worshiped? So see in verse 6 that the revival that's being asked for in verse 4 or being asked for again in verse 7 is a kind of inner renewal and outward renewal of reviving us, turning to the Lord away from sin, which is clearly why verses 5 and 6 is saying that God is angry toward them. Why why was he angry? Well, we know from verses 1 through 3. He's angry because of their iniquity because of all of their many sins against God God's not capricious he he doesn't fly off the handle he's not like some of your fathers who have been cruel and abusive and mean and every time there's something that just annoys him a little bit just like a prick he's he's ready and I meant prick like a uh not the mean word uh like poke like a poke You, you poke me do do I just ooze out with anger and malice That's not what God is like. He's slow to anger. And when we sin again and again and again, he rightly is angry toward our sin and his wrath burns, not fast, but slow. And so notice this psalmist is not beating around the bush. He's not acting like God doesn't have the right to be angry. He says, will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? The question is, why are you angry? We don't deserve this. I think verses 1 through 3 tell us that he understands God accurately a holy God cannot dwell with his people in their promised land and place with their presence if they're in sin. And therefore that's why they were taken away in captivity as verse 1 alludes to. But God is in the business of restoring people out of slavery, freeing them from the bondage of their sins and removing his anger. And that is why they are boldly approaching the throne of grace and saying, God, do it again. We know this is what you're like. Do it again. I hope and pray many of you will have that kind of confidence. It's just in you. You've read it over and over again in the scriptures. You've seen it time and time again in your own life. You hear it when you go to church and you hear testimonies of other people. This is what God does. And we should be expectant. We should be hopeful God, do it again. I want to encourage each and every one of you to pray that God would give Embassy Church the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. That we would be able to come together as church members, even this evening. And as we meet together, that we would be praying, God, would you give all of us, and each and every member, if each of them are a brick of the temple of God's presence here on this earth now, We want to pray that each and every one of them would be turning to God collectively, unified, that we would have God's shalom, his peace, revived in us again. This is a work that God needs to be a part of. Do you all understand this? Why pray this if you could just do this completely on your own apart from the gift of the Holy Spirit? We need reviving from God, reviving us. You didn't breathe life into your body when you first cried out of your mother's womb. And in a similar way, you do not have life within yourself. God, in His kindness, creates, and in His grace, He sustains. And this is true both of creation and salvation. Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, your covenant, faithful, Hesed love. It's the first song we sang in our worship service. Your loving kindness, O God. Show it to us. May we see your salvation so that we would turn back to you. Do you all remember that little line in Romans chapter 2 verse 4? That it is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. I think that could be a good summary of points 1 and 2. We pray to the God of peace and we pray for the peace of God because we are confident in God's kindness And we are assured of God's promises and therefore we boldly approach him and say, God, do it again. Not because we are deserving, not because we're so great, but because of your mercy. Pray to the God of peace. Pray for the God of peace. Finally, hear the gospel of peace. Verses 8 to 13 are some of, I think, the richest and most beautiful language about God's character and his beauty in all the Psalms. But notice the way that verse 8 begins. After rehearsing the past, after praying for what's going on in the present, the need for revival, the psalmist says in verse 8 So now let me hear what God the Lord will speak. I just want to pause there and ask, even right now, do you have an eager anticipation? I want to hear God speak. I don't even want to hear Phil speak. I want, as we walk through these final verses, I want to hear God. I want to be revived again. And I know that the only way I will be revived is when God speaks powerfully through his word and helps my mind be renewed that, yes, there is a God. He is a God of peace, and he wants to grant me peace right now. Wait for it. Wait for it as if your life depends upon it. As Jesus said in Matthew 4, we do not live by flesh and blood and bread alone. We live by the word that comes out of the mouth of God. So, like the psalmist, right now as this sermon is ending, I want to hear God. I want to hear God speak. Why would you want to hear this God speak? He's angry. No, no, no. This God is rightly angry, but this God is a God who will speak peace to his people. Because he is that. He is a God of peace. And he wants them to not turn away to folly, but but fully restored in meaningful relationship with him. Surely, indeed, this salvation of God is near to anyone who would humbly fear the Lord. And then glory would dwell again in the land. That's that picture of full restoration of people in a place Filled with the glory of God's presence dwelling all in perfect full harmony or as we might say shalom. He wants to speak that and then look at verses 10 to 13. In case anyone starts to fall off on one end of the spectrum of the other we might put in God's love with God's and this, this Hebrew word is faithfulness sometimes but I think it's better probably here to see truth. Is God gracious or is he a God of, of truth and faithfulness? He's going to stay faithful to his promises. And those promises include that if you rebel against me, I will judge. Does he have steadfast love or does he have faithfulness? Oh, don't pick and choose. Steadfast love and faithfulness, they, they meet together. And then even more intimately, God's holy righteousness His making sure that all things will be right. I think that's another picture of this fullness. When the world is broken, he's going to make sure it's all right. And he will do that at times when people do not do that on their own willing submission. He will judge or he will save. And so his righteousness is now kissing together with his desire for full, loving, peaceful restoration. Faithfulness springs up from the ground. We come from the bottom up. Righteousness comes down from the sky. Righteousness and peace kiss. Faithfulness and righteousness are being united. Heaven and earth, which have been separated from the fall of humanity in Genesis chapter 3, are coming together in this beautiful picture of the psalm. And the Lord will give what is good and cause the land to yield its increase righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps away. When we read Psalm 85 and we think about the brokenness that exists in our personal heart, the sin that has separated us from the relationship of God, when we think about the brokenness in our family, our church, our community, the world, we might wonder what it will look like for Psalm 85 to be answered we might wonder what it would look like for these promises. They will come in the future. And sure enough, we already have the down payment of God's promises in the person of Jesus. I want you to think about the word Jesus spoke as the picture of chaos was about as perfect of a picture as you could imagine. Here Jesus is on a boat and there's a massive storm. The storm represents, in all of biblical imagery, the lack of shalom. Chaotic waters. The unrest of the sea. Read your Bible again and again and realize how many times the waters are being a depiction of just the broken, chaotic unrest of either an individual, a nation, or really the whole world. And there Jesus is. There, righteousness and peace kiss. There, the Son of God fully representing the full character description that we find here at the picture of Psalm 85. He gets up after being asleep. Everybody's flipping out on the boat. And what does he say? Peace. Be still. Verse 8 says, Let me hear what God the Lord will speak. He will speak peace. That little story is just a beautiful little vignette, a little illustration of what it will look like when the God of Psalm 85 does come as promised, does deliver, shows up in human flesh and sees the chaotic waters. And he can say with the word, he speaks peace and what happens as a result? The waters were still. The power of his word when he speaks peace and declares it over chaotic waters, an unrest in your soul this morning. Receive now through the scriptures the peace of God being spoken through the person and work of Jesus, the Prince of Peace. Our hope is not just that wars will end in the Middle East. Our hope is that the Prince of Peace will reign and rule over every tribe and nation. As I finish out this sermon, I want to give you what I think is one of the most interesting and provocative illustrations that I hope will bring everything that you've heard to a grand conclusion. December 1944 is the time. Hiro Onoder, Hiro Onoder is a Japanese lieutenant in the final months of World War II, December 1944. He was specifically stationed by his commanding officer to do work on a small, tiny island in the Philippines. Within weeks of his arrival, the U.S. attacked the forces of the Japanese, and therefore they had to flee deep into the jungle. His specific instructions were to frustrate the enemy attacks on the island and destroy an airstrip and appear on the island, but he was also given this very important word, under no circumstances should you ever give up your life. He and his comrades eventually would fail their mission as they were stuck and trapped in this jungle, hidden amongst the wilderness, stinging ants, poisonous snakes, living on a diet of banana skins, coconuts, and rice they would steal from small villages. They were convinced that they'd be starved to death. August 15th, 1945. They're not dead yet. It's eight months later. And if any of you know this date, Japan surrendered and World, World War II was over. But who's going to tell our guy hero, Onoda? No one knew. So they went on thinking that the war was still going on, not knowing they would be able to continue attacking. And this would go on for years decades 29 years and 10 months to be exact even in spite of the japanese army in the surrounding years dropping pieces of paper from planes flying over the island informing any of the stragglers that might have been tucked away in the jungle that the war was over Anoda dismissed all of these announcements and thought they were propaganda from the Philippine army. Search parties were even sent to try and find this man. They thought that they were just Japanese prisoners being forced against their will to try and seductively lure in their soldier crew. Photos and messages from his family were even delivered, but he thought they were all doctored. Guys, we're talking about many attempts again and again were being given and delivered, saying, the war is over. Twenty-nine years later, February the 20th, 1974, a, what was described by Anoda, a Japanese hippie boy, his words, not mine, was doing adventure traveling and hiking and said to him that he was going around the world looking for Lieutenant Onoda, a panda bear, and the abominable snowman, and in that order. This young Japanese man ended up finding Onoda four days later in the jungle. They became quick friends, but Onoda still did not believe that the war was over and refused to surrender and come home, saying that he must wait for orders from his superior officer. So this young man returned back to Japan with photographs of him and an odor proving that he had been successful in his mission and found him alive and the Japanese government located the now retired commanding officer who was still alive thankfully and sent him on March the 9th, 1974 into the island. He then met the soldier and said, I'm sorry it took me so long, but we promised that whatever happens, we'll come back for you, and here I am. The superior officer asked him to turn over his sword, his rifle, his 500 rounds of ammunition, and his several hand grenades, and come home. And he did. Your God is your commanding officer. He has come in the person of Jesus. He has declared and spoken to you that peace with God and war and enmity in this world has been accomplished and finished and victory has been won. Are you going to leave here today living like hero Onoter? Still fighting against God? Fighting with one another? Or living and surrendering down? Humbling yourself? He spoken peace. When he wrote, When he said, it is finished on the cross, Jesus Christ forever spoke for us the words of peace that we now need to hear the gospel in order to be able to pray that the God of peace would give us the peace of God. My hope and prayer is that every single one of you would loudly and clearly hear, not just from a pamphlet, or propaganda piece, believe your superior officer has come in the flesh. His name is Jesus, Lord of Lords, King of Kings. His message is shalom. Full restoration with God Almighty, forgiveness of sins, carrying them away as he carried them on the cross on his back. Taking for us the place that we deserved of receiving the full hot anger of God's wrath. Do you believe it? Well, we'll know if you keep fighting in the jungle, or we'll know if your life is marked by surrender to the good news of the gospel. Let's pray now. Our Heavenly Father, we want to now pray in the name of your Son, Jesus, knowing that we have no right, no basis in our own righteousness to pray to you and ask for you to give us peace Lord, we, each and every one of us, in various ways, have made a mess in our own lives. A mess of twisted, broken iniquity. And we are in need of you to change our hearts. We are in need of your Spirit to turn us, that your kindness would draw us to repentance. So we want to pray that the Holy Spirit would do that individually to each and every one of us. Lord, if there's Anyone here today that's still at war with you, still not sure if the actual cosmic battle between heaven and earth and good and evil has really been ended, Lord, I pray that they would just lay down their deadly doing, down at your feet and stand in you, in you alone, righteously complete, full, restored relationship with their Father in heaven. And may that receiving of declarations of good news, of peace being still. Lord, we pray that that would bring such amazing and powerful peace in our soul, and our heart, and in all of our relationships on this earth. Lord, we also just want to again pray as we consider yet again in a time of turmoil in the the global news that we hear that we would be freshly reminded today that there is a king who rules and he will bring not just the absence of war but the full shalom of restoration, of life and flourishing. And the ground will yet increase with life and love. We pray that we would see in Jesus Christ all the fullness of God dwelling bodily and we would love him and worship him. So we wanna ask that you will do this work of reviving and revival by your spirit's power for your glory in Jesus' name, amen.